Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad Taxcast. Today's show is part two of our interview with Caroline Sorolo, partner with Castellanitz and Fink, and former acting assistant attorney general of the U.S. Department of Justice's Tax Division, and Charles Bruce, legal counsel of American Citizens Abroad and chairman of American Citizens Abroad Global Foundation. In part one, we mainly focused on individual taxpayers in regards to non-filers and the CARES Act. Today, we'll take a deeper dive into the population of advisors. We find that these subjects overlap, and what is interesting to taxpayers may be interesting to advisors, and vice versa. Caroline, Charles, thank you for taking the time to explore these subjects and joining us. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Caroline, can you tell us more about what your practice, Castellanitz and Fink, focuses on and who you represent? Sure. Costlands of Inc. is a tax boutique firm. We have partners that are amazing civil tax litigators, and we have estate and trust partners, international tax partners. We're known in the tax controversy space pretty well. The firm's been around for about 75 years. And my practice today is very similar to my practice before I joined the Department of Justice. I represent individuals and entities in civil tax controversies and civil tax litigation and defend them in criminal tax investigations and prosecutions. I also serve as an expert witness in cases where clients would like me to opine on tax controversy related matters, reasonable cause, standards of care by accountants and attorneys in the tax controversy space and often help clients that are trying to come into compliance or trying to analyze areas of non-compliance through either internal investigations, if I'm dealing with my entity clients, or um, representing individuals as they consider paths to coming into compliance for their U.S. tax obligations. Finally, we have quite a cross-border practice where we represent clients that have issues both within the U.S., and in other countries. We often pair up with counsel or other representatives in countries across the globe, particularly in the area where there's global tax enforcement. We know the world is shrinking and oftentimes someone will have a multi-jurisdictional case. And so we are experienced in handling those matters. Can you give us a brief overview on the subject of advisors? Who are the players in the field of advisors to American expats? Sure, this is a great question. Let's break this up into two groups. First, those advisors that represent taxpayers. And second, those individuals who assist with tax administration and enforcement for the U.S. government. In private practice, clients may initially discuss tax compliance matters with their financial advisors or bank representatives. These individuals may have a fiduciary relationship with the client, but they are not generally trained in U.S. or foreign tax matters, and communications with these individuals are not protected by privilege. From there, clients may also work with return preparers, accountants, certified public accountants, or chartered accountants to prepare tax returns, obtain tax planning advice, or respond to government inquiries regarding tax matters. These individuals have varying degrees of education and certifications, and not all of these individuals are competent to handle international tax issues. It's incumbent upon the client to do their due diligence regarding an advisor's experience, and it's really important for all advisors to know their limitations and avoid taking on matters beyond their expertise. In addition, In the United States, there is a statutory privilege that may protect some communications between a client and a federally authorized tax practitioner, but this privilege is limited, and we'll discuss this later in the podcast. Clients will also seek legal advice from attorneys in the United States and abroad. Not all attorneys are trained in tax matters, and even those with tax experience may not have experience with international tax obligations that often face American citizens abroad. The IRS has proposed accuracy-related penalties and non-compliance penalties, sometimes significant penalties, even where a client claims to have relied on the advice of legal counsel if the attorney in question is not trained in the areas at issue. 
Therefore, it's really important for clients to, again, do their due diligence when engaging professional advisors. Within the government, clients may interact with individuals in various operating divisions within the Internal Revenue Service or attorneys within the U.S. Department of Justice. If a client is under a federal tax audit, they will likely communicate with an IRS revenue agent who has received training with respect to substantive and procedural tax issues. Revenue agents will also know how to obtain information and documents from the taxpayer and from third parties, how to interpret financial data, how to conduct interviews, and how to investigate and calculate income and expenses using both direct and indirect methods. IRS revenue agents are guided by the Internal Revenue Service Internal Revenue Manual, which is the training manual of all IRS employees. That manual is available online. There are certain portions that are redacted, but if you're representing clients in this area, it's important to know where to find and how to review the Internal Revenue Manual. During the audit, and particularly with international audits, the revenue agent may consult with attorneys within the IRS Office of Chief Counsel. These attorneys are also trained in substantive and procedural tax matters and have extensive experience with international tax controversies, including the relevant administrative guidance and legal decisions that impact the IRS enforcement actions and civil penalties. The IRS attorneys serve various roles within the tax enforcement system, including drafting guidance, advising and answering questions from IRS operating divisions and various IRS personnel, and litigating cases in the U.S. tax court. If a client becomes a witness, a subject, or a target of a criminal tax investigation, they are likely to come across an IRS special agent. Special agents are often referred to as the best financial investigators in the world. They are trained to identify, investigate, and refer for prosecution various financial crimes, and they are the only agency authorized in the United States to investigate tax crimes. You can identify a special agent by their badge and their firearms, but regardless of what category you fall within, whether you are a witness, subject, or target, a visit by a special agent is not to be taken lightly, and legal counsel should definitely be consulted before any statements are made. If a client has been assessed and failed to pay a tax liability, they will work with personnel in the IRS collection division, including revenue officers who are also trained in financial investigations. Revenue officers will contact taxpayers or their representatives, will collect financial information. They are trained in identifying and pursuing assets and where there is evidence of fraud or evasion of payment or obstruction during the administrative proceeding can refer matters for criminal investigations. Finally, a client may come into contact with attorneys that work for the U.S. Department of Justice Tax Division. The Tax Division is a litigating component of the Department of Justice. It has approximately 500 employees, approximately 350 give or take attorneys that are assigned to a variety of different areas, including civil trial sections, an appellate division, and criminal enforcement sections. A client that is the subject or target of a criminal investigation may come into contact with a prosecutor from the tax division if the matter is referred by the IRS for grand jury investigation or for prosecution. On the civil side, clients may come into contact with civil trial attorneys from the tax division if an FBAR penalty has been assessed, it remains unpaid, and the United States is suing to collect that penalty. Clients may also find themselves facing tax division lawyers if a summons is issued during an audit seeking information and documents, that information is not provided and the IRS goes to the tax division for assistance in enforcing that summons. The IRS and the tax division work very closely together. So it's another group of individuals that a client involved in a tax compliance or tax enforcement matter needs to be aware of and navigate around. I think that's a great set of information. Let me just add a small point. Looking at the revenue agents, 
I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong at this, most of them are probably not accountants or attorneys, but they are highly, highly trained people. And the training materials that they use and that have been taken through and their courses that are taught by very experienced people, they are highly trained individuals. Am I right in general about that, Carolyn? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, there was a hiring freeze at the IRS for some time. When that lifted, in particular, I'm thinking about IRS criminal investigation, and there was a posting. Right now, there's a continuous posting for special agents. The applicants were really amazing. IRSCI was getting applicants for special agent slots that were lawyers, accountants, CPAs, people in private practice, partners at law firms, just really, really strong applicants and very savvy with IT. There are very senior agents working in the IRS, both on the civil and the criminal side. They're very good with the tax and the substance of law. And as they retire, there's a concern about what people have referred to as like a brain drain, like the talent and the historical knowledge. But in their place, as new employees come in, they bring a host of new talents, data analytics, expertise with online research, an understanding of new tax laws that are just passed and that are being imposed, like the TCJA and things like that, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the international arena. The worst thing an advisor can do is underestimate anyone they're dealing with at the IRS or the tax division. Excellent, excellent point. Michelle? Can you explain what is meant by the term eggshell case? We mentioned it in part one of our interview, but it bears repeating, I think. Sure. As we noted, an eggshell audit is an audit where the client and the advisor are aware of areas of non-compliance that may be particularly distressful. And in their mind, the IRS, whether it be a revenue agent or a revenue officer, if it's a collection investigation, is not yet aware of those issues. And so the term comes from the advisors and the clients walking on eggshells, trying to get through the civil audit without a referral to criminal investigation based on badges of fraud. These are often areas of non-compliance or conduct that would rise to the level of badges of fraud in the eyes of the IRS. And when clients come into my office, generally clients aren't completely forthright at the first meeting. They need to trust you. They need to develop that relationship. But as you learn and you peel away the layers, you learn more about some of the conduct that brought them to you in the first place. And Oftentimes, the client is very concerned, desiring to avoid a criminal investigation, which is proper, right? If you have to rank it on the board, your freedom goes up top, and the amount you're ultimately paying in the civil case is kind of at the bottom in terms of priorities. So in eggshell audits, we view freedom as the top priority, and we navigate through the civil audit, the eggshell audit, with that in mind. So there are times in an eggshell audit where you will give up an argument on a civil matter because you know if you pursue that argument, it will lead to the request for information or the disclosure of documents that will hurt you in another area. And it's these audits, a lot of it is experience and practice and understanding how things develop and really, really understanding the standard examination procedures. What tools does the IRS have to get data? What are your rights as a taxpayer? in any audit, what is cooperation and what is not. I mean, these are critical areas that the advisors really need to understand if they're representing clients in an eggshell audit. The last thing you want to do is find out that your client has been referred for criminal investigation because of a misstep by an advisor in a civil audit. Should an advisor explain at the outset the categorization of advisors and where they fit? And could you explain what this means? Sure. So I am a big fan of educating the client and letting the client make decisions based on that information. These are weighty decisions made in tax compliance matters, and the decision ultimately is the client's, even though the client will often turn to us and say, tell me what to do. In order to make good decisions, the clients need to understand not only all of the relevant facts, which they often hold, but the process, the procedures, and what can be communicated in a safe environment and where those communications will step out of the realm of confidentiality. In order to 
fully understand that. They need to know who are they talking to, what can they say, and how will that information be protected? In order to do that, they need to understand the categories of the advisors, and every category has its own little nuance to it. Conversations between an accountant or return preparer and a client are not subject to attorney-client privilege unless the accountant has been hired by the attorney to assist in giving legal advice. Under Internal Revenue Code Section 7525, communications between a client and a federally authorized tax practitioner, including any individual authorized under U.S. law to practice before the IRS, are subject to a limited privilege in certain circumstances. This limited privilege does not protect communications regarding tax shelters or in criminal investigations. It is also important to remember that the common law attorney-client privilege and the statutory privilege under Section 7525 are subject to waiver. Clients need to understand that if they share their communications with their lawyers or other federally authorized tax practitioners with third parties, the communications will no longer be protected by privilege. In addition, if the client challenges tax penalties based on the professional advice received from a lawyer or a federally authorized tax practitioner, courts have found that the client, by putting the advice at issue, has waived the privilege. To protect documents created by the lawyer or a third party with respect to a client matter, the lawyer may assert the work product doctrine, which protects materials prepared in anticipation of litigation. This is a term of art that has been analyzed at length by the courts, but essentially requires some anticipation of litigation or controversy, even if there is no dispute currently pending at the time the work product is prepared. Finally, advisors must keep in mind that different jurisdictions apply different rules when it comes to privilege, and what may be protected in the United States may not be protected in England, Denmark, France, etc. Therefore, in cross-border matters, before communications occur or documents are created, the advisor should review and really understand all applicable rules and restrictions that may apply. Let me, within the same subject matter, ask what I'll call a rifle shot question, and that is, what if what the attorney or the accountant, that type of person, is working on is something that you know what you're talking about you know is going to find its way into the tax return so you're talking about this and that how should we categorize this but everybody knows the outcome of that is going to go into the tax return does that make a difference that's a great point and something i should have addressed yes what i was talking about was legal advice but if you are giving information to return preparer with the intent that that information will be used to report information on a return, then that is not a privileged communication. The preparation is not privileged and the filing is not privileged, of course, because you're sending that to the IRS. There is no intent to keep that confidential. So if I'm a lawyer, oftentimes lawyers, particularly in the last 10 years during the offshore voluntary disclosure heyday, would prepare returns and they would sign the returns and file the returns as a preparer because they were both lawyers and CPAs. Well, in doing so, they have put at risk all their communications with the client. Now they can argue, well, I wore one hat for this conversation, another hat for that conversation. That is a very dangerous approach because I believe that if someone were at the government trying to pierce those privileges, they would have some pretty strong arguments that the information gathered was for the purpose of putting it on a return that was ultimately filed. And so it's really important to understand that your return preparer and your accountant, your chartered accountant and your CPA, will generally not have privilege to the extent that they are gathering information to prepare returns or file returns, or, or even in terms of the streamlined filing process. The case that was recently charged, it was about a year ago now, in August of 19, where a guy named Brian Booker was charged criminally in Florida for a number of actions, but one in particular was the submission of an allegedly false streamlined submission package. That case also involved privilege issues. You know, what was privileged along the way and were his communications with his advisors for the purpose of putting together this streamlined package that was going to be filed with the IRS, were they privileged? You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you think something is privileged, either as the advisor or the client, and ultimately it's not. 
What should an advisor do on the subject of know your client from the start? What are the preferred ways to vet a client? And if foreign entities are brought up, is it standard to run names through the Panama Papers database? As professional advisors, it is critical that you know your clients and perform due diligence before accepting an engagement. These efforts not only protect you and your firm from later accusations of aiding and abetting misconduct or attempts to obtain your communications under the crime fraud exception, but also assist in you ultimately providing the best advice based on all relevant facts and circumstances. In addition to searching your files for any obvious conflict with other clients, you should be performing public searches using Google and other search engines, social media platforms, legal databases such as Westlaw, LexisNexis, and Pacer, and any other available tools. These tools would include the database established by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, which contains the names of individuals and entities involved in the Panama Papers, the Bahama Leak, Paradise Papers, and other offshore leak investigations. Finally, once you've been engaged and before you render advice upon which the clients will certainly rely, make sure that you have obtained and reviewed the client's available documents, their financial records, their prior tax returns, etc. Interview the prior and current return preparers, order wage and income transcripts or account transcripts from the IRS to determine what has been reported by third parties and what has been recorded in the IRS systems. In fact, you may even want to submit a request to the IRS for the taxpayer's files pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act. Having all the information allows an advisor to provide the best possible advice and just as important, do no further harm to the situation. I'll just chime in. It's good for something else too. Things like the Panama Papers database, it's not just to see things about the client, but you may want to find out who else worked with the client because that other person might be a client of your law firm also. So you've got a conflicts problem. That's absolutely true. And it's really important. I know we're going to get into some of these issues with the conflicts that advisors at all ends of the spectrum, all the way from a return preparer up to a lawyer really carefully consider conflicts, not only at the outset of an engagement, but throughout the engagement because cases develop over time and conflicts can arise in the midst of an engagement that were not there at the outset. Good point. I'm sure the answer may vary based on situation, but could you outline some of the best practices for an advisor? Sure. The first thing I always tell people is, this is not as easy as it looks. And I say that after nine years of the offshore voluntary disclosure program, there were a lot of practitioners, both accountants and lawyers that jumped into tax representation during the heyday of offshore voluntary disclosures and websites popped up and people were doing these in mass and pushing people into the offshore voluntary disclosure program, thinking it's very cookie cutter and oftentimes it was in many cases, only to find that as they got down the road, there were nuances that came up that they weren't comfortable with or they didn't have competency in certain areas. And as a result, their client ended up paying more or having an extended period of time under scrutiny by the IRS or not disclosing certain things because they weren't thinking through the various areas. This is not to say there aren't thousands of amazing practitioners across the country or more. There's a tremendous number of very, very qualified practitioners within the United States and outside the United States that can help clients. For those people that were jumping in and saying, this is a great way to expand my practice and now I'm going to market this, I would say, please remember that it's not as easy as it looks. You need to invest the time and energy into really learning this area if you're going to represent clients. Because like our clients, you may be worse off at the end of the day if you don't. And I've seen people put their bar licenses at risk as a result of that. The other thing I would say is we generally like our clients and we don't judge. Of course, clients come to us with problems, so far be it from us and we shouldn't judge them or we should applaud them for coming forward and help them come into compliance. But you need to verify what the clients give. If you accept it at face value and you're not peeling away the layers, you're not doing the client any good. 
oftentimes clients have come into you after years of non-disclosure and perhaps overt deception. They need help coming forward and being candid. They need your help. Trusting but verifying is critical. Also, remember your ethical obligations. At the end of the day, you have to live with you. That means you have to protect your license. You're not good to anybody, including yourself, your partners, your family, if you are at professional risk for your conduct. So make sure that you're familiar with Circular 230. If you're a lawyer with the model rules of professional conduct, if you're an accountant with the AICPA standards or with the rules that govern the professionals overseas and that you comply with those first and foremost. Remember that a voluntary disclosure is not the best path for every taxpayer. Taxpayers come in and they're very concerned. At a vet first blush, you're thinking, well, I need to throw them into a voluntary disclosure as quickly as possible. That could be a really bad decision. And so you wanna take a breath and look at the whole board, talk it through with the client, and then give them the options. Client management, prepare them, give them the information, educate your clients. We were just talking about making sure they understood when privileges apply and what your role was and what your capacity is. They need to know what's coming ahead so they're not very concerned. They're not calling you in the middle of the night because they can't sleep. If you lay it out and you manage those expectations, both of you will be better in the long run. Document your file and understand that everything that goes out of your office is your personal footprint. It's your reputation on the line. You may think that you're dealing with one of many, many 75,000 people that work at the IRS, but this is a small bar. You may run into the same agent, the same revenue agent, or they will talk internally. They'll write notes in the file. You want that to be your best product and keep a really solid record of everything that you send out and that you receive from the government. If you're not competent in a certain area, it doesn't mean that you can't become competent or pull in other people that are competent. You're better off doing that than trying to wing it. This is really not an area to wing it. And be creative. Not creative in the sense of violating any rules or processes or procedures, but thinking outside the box in these cases is helpful. Those are best practices. Could you explain the special issues where there is or might be a joint return? Sure. So the first thing that comes to mind is if a client walks in or two clients walk into your office, spousal returns, you've got an inherent conflict of interest right off the bat. It's dual representation. There are specific rules on this under Circular 230 and the model rules and AICPA standards. And you've got to educate the clients as to what are the inherent conflicts because they may have differing issues or different objectives. And it is very difficult to represent both a husband and wife if they're not on the same page. And just because they're on the same page when they walk into your office doesn't mean they will be on the same page when they leave that meeting, <laughs> when there's a candid discussion. First and foremost, you need to decide, is this a case where I should be representing both or should I be bringing in separate counsel? Oftentimes, clients will not want to pay for two lawyers. And you can theoretically represent husband and wife. I've done it in the past. Many people have done it. But you need conflict waivers. You need informed consent by both the husband and the wife if you're going to do that. The worst thing to do is represent a husband and wife when you've only spoken to one of them. Oftentimes, and I don't want to pick on the husband, but frequently I'll have a husband call and say, I did this. I created this problem. My wife didn't have anything to do with it, so I'll fix it. You'll represent both of us. I'll have a brief call with the wife on the phone, and then he's the only one I'm talking to. And I always push back on that. I insist that my communications go to both of them and that I speak to her on a consistent basis to make sure that she understands. And even separately, you have to make sure that they understand there's no secrets. If one person tells you something, you can't keep it from the other side. And if you do pursue or accept joint representation, you need to make sure that you're advising them that if a conflict arises, it becomes a non-waivable conflict. Discord in the marriage, you have to walk away from both. You don't get to pick one or the other. You're walking away and now they're both stuck with getting new counsel and it's more expensive than if they gotten separate counsel in the beginning. So that's the first and foremost in terms of joint returns. In addition, if a joint return is filed, that means there's joint and several liability for the tax penalties and interest that arise as a result of that return. Now, oftentimes this doesn't come up because a joint return is filed, the tax is paid, and life goes on, and it never comes to surface. When it comes up, it usually comes up in an audit or an investigation. There are privileges 
between spouses that need to be recognized, the spousal privilege, the communications privilege, and the testimonial privilege, which is a bit beyond the scope of this webcast, that can protect certain things. There are also exceptions to those privileges. So you might find yourself in a joint audit, an audit of a joint return, where one spouse is willing to hand over the other spouse. Again, that would be a conflict and you would have to withdraw from both if you were engaged in joint representation. But there are ways under the Internal Revenue Code to relieve one spouse of liability for joint and several liability. It is not a foregone conclusion that such relief will be granted. It's under Section 6015 of the Internal Revenue Code, and there are specific requirements that must be satisfied. And the IRS is not easily swayed in that area because if they give up one of the taxpayers and there's a liability, they have to pursue that collection from just one instead of both. There's a lot of litigation in this area, and you can have a whole nother webcast on joint and several liability. The last thing I would point out is because of the nature of our audience, there's an election that could be had if you have a U.S. filer and a non-resident alien that is not required to file a U.S. return. There's an election that can be made, and that can get a bit complicated. There are ways to invoke it, and then there are difficulties in suspending it. Again, it's beyond the scope of this webcast. You should be considering those issues if you're representing both, particularly if you are a return preparer. I guess the takeaway here is don't represent two taxpayers if you're only talking to one. Don't prepare tax returns and sign as a preparer if you've never spoken to one of the spouses about what's on that return because they will be the first ones to say you never talked to them about it and understand the impact of elections and how that could play down the road if you've got a U.S. person and a, a non-resident. When should a Form 2848 be used? Also, do you have any thoughts about the ins and outs or subtleties of a Form 2848? The Form 2848 is the power of attorney. It's the authorization form that allows the practitioner to represent a client before the Internal Revenue Service, and it authorizes it's required to be received and processed by the IRS before the IRS can release tax return or tax return information about a taxpayer to a third party. That's under Section 6103 of the Internal Revenue Code. The tax privacy statute bars any disclosure of return or return information about a taxpayer. And so what we refer to in shorthand as POA or the Form 2848 is a critical document. Another version of an authorization is the Form 8821, Anyone who's been listening that's refinanced their house or purchased a house and gotten a mortgage might be familiar with this. It's an authorization for a third party to just obtain certain information, but not to handle the taxpayer's affairs, not to engage in discussions about the return information, just to pull certain documents like a transcript showing that returns were filed. That's an 8821. In addition, there's a Form 56, which is a fiduciary form. And if an executor is representing the decedent acting as a fiduciary or a trust, they're required to complete the 56, the form 56 and attach it then to the form 2848. And then finally, a document that often comes up in this area is a change of address form. Filing a change of address is how you officially change your address. Some people think by filing a 2848 POA or these other forms that that changes the taxpayer's address. Online, the IRS reminds practitioners and clients that you really need to use the change of address form in order to do that. And listing your attorney's address or your accountant's address as your new address, because let's say you're traveling or you decide to go on a boat for six months and you want your accountant to get your records, is not an authorization. That's just a change of address. So let's step back now and talk about the 2848. What I do when I meet with clients for the first time is I walk through the boxes on the 2848. And a lot of times people will just kind of say, just sign here on the second page and date it, and this will let me talk to the IRS. But I find that it's better if you can walk the clients through that form so they really understand what you're doing with that form. This is some of the most private information that taxpayers have. We've seen in the United States how people fight to keep their tax returns private. This authorization is the key that unlocks that door. And so the clients really need to understand what this is. And I go step by step. If you're looking at a Form 2848, I'll just touch on a few things in terms of best practices. First, always use the most current form. If you've been at this for a while, these forms have changed over time. It used to be that you could put a husband and wife on one form. Now there are separate forms for taxpayer, which is a key ingredient of this. 
it asks for the taxpayer's phone number at the top on the right hand side i always put my own number and i put poa next to it so there's no avenue that they can someone can call the taxpayer directly if the taxpayer is represented and there's a power of attorney on file they should be reaching out to their representative not that i'm trying to prevent my client my client could always call the irs and have a conversation certainly they're right but i don't want my client sitting there and receiving a call from someone from the irs in addition, there's a lot of boxes to check. If you want notices from the IRS, in addition to being able to handle client affairs, you have to check certain boxes. There's a box on the Form 2848 that allows us to add other representatives. You need to sit down and talk to the client about that, explain what that means and what that allows you to do. So if you're in a practice and all of a sudden you hire a new attorney or associate or an accountant and you wanna add them to the power of attorney so they can call and get transcripts or something, if you check that box, you can do that without going back to the client and getting a new power of attorney, but the client better be aware that you're doing it because if they ever get a copy of that and they see a name that they didn't authorize and you didn't explain what that is, you're gonna have a tough conversation with the client. On the first page of the power of attorney, there's a box where you list the type of tax, so it could be income tax or employment tax or excise or estate, and then you list the relative forms. In the international arena, if you want to talk to the IRS about the FBARs, the foreign bank account reports, that has to be specifically listed separately on this form. In the far right-hand column of that chart, you're going to put your tax periods. You are allowed to go forward up to three years. These cases, compliance cases, can last quite some time. So with the client's approval, if they're coming to see me now in 2020, I will often push that out, that period out to 2023. So if they're filing their 2020 return in 2021 or 22, that I'm able to address those issues without having to go back and track down the client and get a new power of attorney signed. For those of you using software, authorized software to access portals to go through and pull down transcripts and create spreadsheets that are helpful. There's a whole line of software out there for tax practitioners. There's a box you can check that says you're going to do that. You have to authorize yourself, but the client has to authorize you to use those portals. And on the second page of the form, it's really important to remember, one, you need to sign the returns. They really don't like digital signatures, even in the COVID era. And the date of your signature, it must be dated has to be within a certain period of time, and I want to say it's 45 days, of the date of the taxpayer signature. If that date period, and this is in the instructions, it's right on the second page of the form, but if that period of time is too long, you're going to get a rejection on your power of attorney. And it's not great when you first start out a case to file a form, which is fairly simple, a power of attorney, and then have it rejected because the client will get a copy of that rejection and a letter from the IRS saying your practitioner filed this and it was wrong. You discussed the different types of advisors and referenced both the attorney-client privilege and the statutory privilege under 7525. We understand that in some cases, an attorney will engage in an accountant and that as a result, conversations with the accountant are privileged. Can you explain how this works? There is a case from the 1960s. It's the Covell case, K-O-V-E-L. And it was tried in the Southern District of New York. It was actually tried by the founder of my law firm, Proslan and Simping. It established the Covell privilege. And what this is, it extends the attorney-client privilege from the attorney-client to a third party whom is engaged by the attorney to assist the attorney in giving legal advice. Without getting into the details of the case, because I know we're going to run short on time. For example, a client comes to me and they are considering coming into compliance and maybe considering a voluntary disclosure. One of the things I want to do at the outset is determine what are the various available paths of compliance and how much will it cost the client under each path so I can give the client all the information. In order to do that, I want to have draft returns prepared, either delinquent returns or amended returns. But I'm not sure whether the client's ultimately going to file these returns. So what I might do and frequently do is that I engage a forensic accountant, which can be a CPA or return preparer or chartered accountant. I engage them directly. My law firm engages them to assist me in giving legal advice to the client. Their files, this third party, this accountant's files, are really my files. It's as if I was hiring them as an employee for my firm. By doing that, and I have a written engagement letter called the Cavell Agreement, I can then allow the accountant to talk directly with my client under the umbrella of attorney-client privilege. 
Now, this is an invaluable benefit to the client because they can speak directly with the accountant. They can give all sorts of information to the accountant. And I can then get draft returns and consider them and talk freely with both the accountant and the client. There are some drawbacks here, though. If that accountant then becomes the signing preparer and signs ultimately the returns prepared and file them, that destroys the Covell privilege. It's really important to understand that Covell accountants have a certain role. Now, if the client at the end of the day decides I'm going to do a voluntary disclosure and I'm going to have to pretty much have full transparency anyway, then maybe there's no harm to that. The accountant has worked with the client. They understand everything. They signed as preparer. We submit those returns through the voluntary disclosure, and it's going to be an open book anyway. That's fine. But if the client at the end of the day decides, I'm just going to file these returns, I'm going to file them, and if I get audited, I'm going to raise defenses, they may not want every conversation that they had with that Covell accountant subject to summons or interviews or watching that accountant take the stand in a criminal case. And so in that situation, the Covell accountant would remain under the umbrella of the attorney-client privilege. But when the returns are ultimately prepared, the data that is calculated, like the draft paper, they call them white paper returns, or you could even put it in an Excel spreadsheet, is given to a second accountant that has not had all of those conversations. They get the data, they get the supporting source documents, and you ask them to prepare returns. And while they will talk to the client, hi, I'm your accountant, I'm your preparer, they're not going to have the heart-to-heart -heart conversations that may occur with a Covell about intent, which is the key issue in many of these compliance cases. What did you intend when you were out of compliance? Were you willful? Was this illegal, a known violation, or an intentional violation of a known legal duty? And so you would hire that second accountant to be the signing and preparer accountant, and the Covell accountant would stay within the rubric of the privilege. That's what the Covell case established. And it's not just limited to the forensic accountant. You could have a translator. Oftentimes our clients, English is a second language, and a translator is important to make sure the nuances are fully understood. So we will engage a translator under Covell agreement. I think if I have a family member that is critical to representation because perhaps my client is elderly and maybe in the beginning stages of dementia or really needing a trusted family member to translate for them down the road and that person can add value, I would argue that that person can be engaged by me to assist in giving legal advice to their family member and bring them under a Covell because I don't want to destroy that attorney-client privilege. And you can't take a situation where a client doesn't have that ability. Now, there's been a lot of back and forth about who can be a Covell and who can't. One thing that's really critical is that an existing return preparer or an accountant that has signed and filed returns on behalf of a client and therefore has no privilege with respect to prior years or the preparers of the false returns, not saying they were at fault, but they prepared the prior year returns that are now being amended, they should never be the Covell accountant. There is no way to retroactive a Covell agreement to privilege or to protect prior communications. And so it's really important that accountants that are sitting with a client identifying an issue of potential criminal exposure or potential need for confidential communications, stop and call an attorney or tell the client to go consult with an attorney. The best decision can be made to protect those communications. What issues arise if a client is referred to a return preparer or an attorney by a bank? Can, for example, an attorney represent both the individual taxpayer and the bank, or an individual taxpayer and some other parties, such as a fiduciary used to create corporations or trusts, or one or more employees of the bank? So the quick answer is no. That would be an actual conflict of interest in my view. I know during the heyday of the offshore disclosures, there were Swiss financial institutions that had U.S.-based lawyers that were telling U.S. account holders that they're firms and that they could represent them in disclosures. And I think that was really bad advice because I don't see how you can represent both the bank that is accused, particularly in the Swiss bank program, of conspiring with its U.S. account holders to withhold information and those account holders. That, that seems to be the height of an actual unwaivable conflict. 
But that doesn't mean that the bank can't refer an account holder to a qualified representative. In fact, that happened all the time. There were numerous foreign financial institutions that would have lists of U.S. attorneys that they could refer clients to because they wanted their account holders to come into compliance. Not only was it for the good of the tax system, but it reduced the penalties that the foreign financial institutions ultimately paid in the Swiss bank program. If they could convince an account holder to come into compliance either through a voluntary disclosure or a streamlined filing submission procedure or other avenue that removed those accounts from the penalty base. That happened frequently and that was fine. And a lot of practitioners across the country in the United States represented clients that came through those referrals. That's not a problem, but the joint representation is a real problem. You can't represent two people that would have adverse interests. And most of the time the client is going to point to the advisors and say, I relied on him or her. And even if they weren't, if they co-conspired together, you can't do that either because one may need to cooperate against another. What should a return preparer do if there is any hint of criminal behavior, such as false statements, backdated documents, or illegal sources of funds? Are we back to walking on eggshells? I would start by saying that you're not walking on eggshells in the sense of tax controversy matters until an audit commences because the eggshell audit refers to a pending proceeding where you are aware of noncompliance, you believe the IRS is not aware of it, and that's why you're walking on eggshells. Before there's a pending proceeding, whether it be an audit or a collection effort, you have the opportunity to get ahead of it. This question seems more directed to that, and I would say that if a return preparer or an accountant is sitting with a client and the first hint of what we would refer to as a badge of fraud arises, they should stop and tell the client to consult with legal advice. Now, sometimes this happens and the client will consult with a lawyer. Ultimately, the lawyer decides you don't need me. I know this was a concern, but I think you're fine. What you've described is not willful conduct. It was a mistake or no, you actually don't have a filing obligation. I appreciate you consulting with me. That was smart to do. And this is a privileged conversation, but I think you're fine proceeding with your accountant. And I've done that over my career many times because oftentimes when people come in, they're very worried. Everything that they've done is under a microscope. But I think it's always wise for the accountants to have a list of trusted lawyers at the ready with phone numbers and email addresses that if they're in one conference room, meeting with a client, they can say, excuse me, step out, pick up a phone, call a lawyer that can be on the phone within the next five to 10 minutes with the client in a separate room, having a private conversation with that lawyer to determine if the meeting with the accountant can continue. And that's really a good practice for the return preparers, whether they be just return preparers or CPAs or chartered accountants or enrolled agents to pursue. What can happen if the IRS or Department of Justice detects a pattern of bad behavior by a return preparer? Can they obtain information about all the clients of that preparer? Can they produce a list of all clients having searched by returns signed by the preparer with the preparer's PTIN? Yes, this is important to remember. First, by the time a return preparer finds out or discovers that they are either the subject of a preparer investigation by the IRS, and that's a civil investigation of their conduct as a return preparer, or a criminal investigation by the IRS or perhaps by the Department of Justice, a lot of work has been done. The IRS or the Department of Justice doesn't immediately call someone who's the subject of an investigation, whether it be civil or criminal, and say, hi, I'm just starting this. I thought I'd talk to you first. There's a lot of work to be done, and it can be months in the works. And with preparers, one of the very first things that is done is looking at the P10s, what has been filed under that preparer's number. That's the one, it's probably first on the list. There are audit technique guides that are public documents, and there's a lot of guidance online, both with the IRS and the Internal Revenue Manual and by private practitioners giving speeches about how these investigations and audits and criminal investigations occur. And they all say that there's going to be due diligence beforehand and the tools the IRS can use in all the different databases. In addition to searching the PTINs, they may search all of the internal databases using data analytics to determine if these preparers 
were the listed preparers for any client that came in through a voluntary disclosure, a streamlined compliance, was identified in the Swiss bank program as a preparer or a professional enabler, showed up on one of the databases like the Panama Papers, the ICIJ, or his name came up because they were disclosed by a cooperator in a criminal case or a whistleblower. The IRS will search multiple databases, but the PTIN is the very basic. That's one of the first things that they'll do. It's one of the easiest. If it's determined that a preparer engaged in improper conduct, the penalties can range from civil penalties under the Internal Revenue Code to referrals to the Office of Professional Responsibility and different sanctions by that office, ranging from a warning letter to debarment, suspension, and being unable to practice before the IRS, which is the death knell of a return preparer, at least in the U.S., all the way up to a criminal investigation. And there's specific sections of the Internal Revenue Code in the 7000 area that are frequent charges against return preparers engaged in illegal fraudulent conduct. And that would include Section 72062, which is aiding and abetting the filing of false returns. That's a felony subject to a three-year period of incarceration and a six-year statute of limitations. In addition, they could be charged with conspiracy under Title 18 of the U.S. Code, which is the general criminal title. And that could be conspiring with their clients to either violate a substantive provision of the Internal Revenue Code or just to defraud the IRS. That's called a client conspiracy. And we've seen that over the years. Generally, if you are interested in this area and want to see some government documents, you can just look at the press releases. There's always an uptick in preparer investigations and public charges filed during tax season because that seems to get this deterrence level out of the practitioner community. And in addition, in really egregious cases, the IRS will refer a matter over to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice will file an injunction proceeding to enjoin a preparer from continuing to prepare returns. And they are often increased prior to and in the midst of the tax filing season. And that can enjoin the taxpayer from the preparer from preparing any returns, from filing any returns. And ultimately, if that order is entered and the preparer continues to violate the order by preparing returns, they can be held in contempt and incarcerated. Even with civil contempt, they can be incarcerated as a result of the violation. Is there anything that you'd like to add about FACA? FACA was a real game changer in terms of sources of information for purposes of tax enforcement. FACA was enacted in 2010, and it arose after there was a clear awareness by the United States that information was needed regarding accounts overseas. FATCA became the standard bearer for automatic exchange. And there's been a lot of pushback over the years because FATCA is a U.S.-based program. And under FATCA, the U.S. enters into intergovernmental agreements with foreign jurisdictions to agree to exchange information and jurisdictions that refuse to enter into these agreements, their financial institutions pay a price in terms of withholding. And so there's pushback in terms of FATCA and the fact that it's so driven from the U.S. perspective. But outside of the United States, we have the common reporting standards. And the common reporting standards are similarly designed for automatic exchange of information. And in fact, oftentimes exchange more information than would be required under the FATCA internal government agreements or the IGAs. And there's frequent talk about why we can't all get on the same page and everyone just get along under one program. But the important thing to remember for purposes of this webcast is that FATCA increased the automatic exchange of information. We had automatic exchange of information prior to FATCA for certain types of income and information. And there was that exchange going on. There was a report by our Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, TIGDA, on the status of automatic exchange of information that was not giving it very high marks. There were times when we were getting, we being the United States, were getting information, but we weren't really giving information. And it was not nearly as fulsome as it is now under FATCA. 
But now we have many agreements with many, many countries. The data has been flowing in since about 2014, 2015. That data is received and is available to the IRS, and the IRS is using data analytics to tap that database along with numerous other databases when they're initiating audits or investigations of U.S. taxpayers. It's important to remember that this information is out there and it continues to drive U.S. persons, U.S. taxpayers into compliance because, for example, they will be sitting there in their home outside the U.S. and they'll get a letter from, let's say, NatWest. And that bank will send a letter to the client and say, we're collecting information and we believe that you have a U.S. indicia. Well, if that taxpayer is out of compliance, the first thing that they will do is generally pick up the phone and talk to an advisor and say, I'm out of compliance. I got this letter. Now I'm concerned. What are my options? That letter is not a triggering event to prevent them from coming into compliance. But if the bank discloses the information under the automatic exchange of information and that information works its way into the IRS database and then the IRS initiates an exam as a result of that information that is a triggering event and that that taxpayer would no longer be eligible for one of these kindler friendler compliance paths so it's important to remember that under FATCA the IRS is getting a lot more data it's having like a wider lens to look at compliance around the world I don't see this ending anytime in my lifetime. There have been lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of FATCA, including by a sitting senator. That complaint failed. Determined FATCA is constitutional, it is in place, and it will continue. It also has had impact on the U.S. tax returns in that the Form 8938, it comes out of the FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. It's the tax return version of your FBAR. And if you've ever filled out that form, you know that all of the account information that you put on your FBAR, you also put on your 8938. This is here to stay. The information is available and it prevents, it's one more reason why it's difficult to hide income and assets overseas. Well, I'll just say I found that very, very interesting. Not today, but maybe some other day you can come back and explain data analytics to us. We'll take a pass yes. on it for right now. <laughs> Before we conclude, are there one or two things that you would like to say to advisors who practice in this area? What are the things that you would really like to hammer in their head? I teach international controversies at Georgetown and our students are often practitioners. They come from all walks of life. Some are in law school, some are in their graduate tax program, but many are practicing tax professionals, either in accounting or law firms or in industry or in government. I will say what I say to them, which is, one, I'm really glad you're listening to this because I love this area and I think it's very exciting. It's a changing landscape and it's never dull. But to the extent that you are representing clients in this area, it is really critical that you stay abreast of developments. Things are changing every day. This is an area of contentious activity. And so we're in the courts, there's litigation, there's decisions coming down. On a regular basis, the IRS, if anyone's been watching the IRS, if you're a tax professional, there's no way to miss this. They have just done a tremendous job during this pandemic of issuing guidance and reacting to the passage of the CARES Act and invoking the emergency declaration powers under Section 7508A and extending deadlines and getting out these economic impact payments that we've talked about. There's just so much data. And so for all the professionals on the phone, whether you are in private practice or in public companies or in the government, it's important to stay abreast of this information and to really love it, to really embrace it. When you're dealing with clients, understand that it's overwhelming at times. There's a lot of information that you're going to be throwing at them and you may have to explain it. In fact, I recommend that you explain certain things several times because there's this old adage, like if you say it three times, it starts to sink in. It's important to really explain this. Don't presume that the clients understand everything and never think that you're telling one client and so that client will tell the other. This spousal representation or business partner representation or 
Um, these joint representation issues are real. They happen every day, and it's really critical that you're advising all of your clients. And then I would just remember that when you're dealing with the government, it's a small bar in private practice, and it's a small group inside the government handling this. Even if it's a thousand people, that's not a large group. So do your best. Put your best foot forward. Put the time and effort into your letters. Check for typos. Make sure you're sending it to the right offices. Protect your privileges. Make sure that you have measures in place to protect confidentiality. Attend your CLEs and enjoy it. That would be my best advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything presented in both this show and part one of our interview. Your presentations were terrific. If we weren't doing this by audio, you would see Charles and me rising to our feet and giving you a big round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. The American Citizens Abroad Taxcast is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. It is published on the 15th and at the end of each month. You can get in touch with us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember to give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.